Hello and welcome to the Slower Travel Podcast. I'm Ian and for reasons we'll no doubt get into in future episodes, I enjoy sitting on buses. I'm not a bus spotter or I'm in any way interested in the buses themselves, but I do love hopping from town to town, watching the world go by from an uncomfortable seat on a double-decker. By sheer blind luck, I managed to get my wife Eleanor into travelling around on public transport too, and she joins me on most of these trips. Apologies in advance for any terrible accents that I do, and I don't know why I don't just ask Elle to speak her parts. She's only in the next room, so there's no excuse really. Anyway, without further ado, let's get cracking. The first few trips that we're going to do are from an adventure that me and Eleanor did back in, oh, when was it? May. May in 2019. It was for our wedding anniversary, believe it, and our 15th. And, um... Well, you don't sound old enough to be married for 15 years, does it? Well, it's true, we got married very young. Uh, childhood sweethearts and all that kind of thing. Anyway, we went from Edinburgh all the way down to Whitby in a couple of days. And the first four episodes, they'll chart that. We started off on the 253 bus from Edinburgh down to Berwick. And uh, fasten your seatbelts if you've got any. And we're underway. UK. Long story short, writes about traveling around the UK on local buses, which I admit is a bit of a niche hobby. I don't know, that sounds pretty cool to me. Slow travel, the cold UK. Talking about slow travel, the cold UK. The set from Blade Runner feels homely compared to Edinburgh bus station. It's airless, with bright white walls and neon blue strip lights running around its perimeter, discouraging passengers thinking of injecting drugs on the concourse while awaiting the 900 to Glasgow or the X-59 to St Andrews. There are other buses, of course. Most of the buses which line up are actually coaches, although a handful of regular single-deckers sneak in and scurry out again without causing too much of a nuisance. Ours is one of the latter, and we board with a pair of German tourists whose rucksacks are so hefty that they've developed freakish shoulder muscles, more befitting of wrestlers. The man at the front has the floppiest side part in this side of Dawson's Creek, while his friend with a russet beard and expensive DSLR camera sits just behind him. German is a language capable of stringing together incredible compound words and is notorious for having a term for near enough every eventuality, but Bowling Green is an exception. Again, apologies for the dodgy accents. Was ist ein Bowling Green? asked the man with the floppy hair, although we probably asked it in a, a friendlier way than that. I, I'm not very good at uh, uh, doing Teutonic voices. Uh, yeah, Bowling Green asked the man with the floppy hair, after his pal mentions one in relation to photos. Bowls is so obscure in Germany that there are no clubs in the entire country whatsoever. So his bafflement at this most British of pastimes is understandable. With the world still bleary-eyed, the 253 sets off at 8am on the dot, cutting a swathe through central Edinburgh's tree-lined boulevards. They're impressive townhouses built to withstand the elemental rigours of this elevated position above the Firth of Forth. It's a supercharged version of Bath, boosted by the added drama of Arthur's seat protruding high above Holyrood Park to the right and the cadaver of Meadowbank Stadium on the left. The only arena to have hosted the Commonwealth Games twice, in 1970 and 1986, its final crumbling concrete stand is mid-demolition, 
awaiting rebirth as a new sports and hotel complex. I bet that's going to be dead good. Uh, we're at the start of the A1A, so it's only proper that this early section of the UK's longest thoroughfare is called London Road. London being its eventual southern terminus, 396 miles away. It soon becomes Willow Bray Road, where Go As You Please stakes a claim for being the most Scottish funeral directors in the entire country. Its window display shows upright tartan coffins and a bright orange casket bearing the Iron Brew logo. Now, I don't care what happens to my remains after I run out of steam. Chuck me in the sea, stick me on a Ferris wheel, fire me off into space, I couldn't give a monkeys. But, I promise to do everything in my spectral powers to haunt anybody who carries me off in a branded fizzy drinks box. As with any large city, handsomeness peters out and morphs into mundanity as we approach its outer fringes, with grand Georgian edifices replaced by double-fronted bungalows and pebble-dashed semis. After breaking through a shabby ring of retail parks, we'll leave Edinburgh behind and motor up the dual carriageway past tufty golf courses and into the green belt. Not that we can actually see most of it, because we've become encased by tall grass banks, leaving tantalising signs for Wallyford, Long Nidri and Preston Pans to sail by unrequited. After a dreary half an hour, we arrive in Haddington. It was Scotland's fourth largest city in medieval times, after Edinburgh, Aberdeen and Roxburgh, the last one of which is now a tiny village a few miles from its original site. Haddington was the birthplace of Alexander II and even the Scottish flag itself, raised for the first time at a nearby Battle of Athelstainford in 832. Despite being relegated to a rural outpost these days, it's still East Lothian's seat of governance. There are enormous mansions on the main hill down to its immaculate town centre, where ancient trees hug prime spots which would have faced a chop had housing developers come calling in less enlightened times. Marketed as the hidden tune, Haddington is well away from the usual tourist trails, and although it's stashed out of view to most, the A1 bypassed it as early as the 1930s, and it hasn't had a railway station since 1949. It's twin high streets and tiny lanes are ripe for closer exploration. The bus only runs every two hours though, so we're forced to stay in our seats. We leave the umbilical cord of the A1 for a while and take the parallel A199. The distinctive plug of trap rain law bulges from the landscape like a green blister, with wind turbine blades scything the air from the flat summits of the Lammermuir hills beyond it. We pick up a dozen new passengers on our way into Dunbar, a pair of which are a blind lady and a waggletail Labrador puppy she's training to be a guide dog. They're only on for two stops, but it's vital for him to get used to being mollycoddled on public transport. Town itself is a beauty. There's an oldie-worldy feel about its bright shops, with a gargantuan pestle and mortar above the threshold of a chemist, and inexplicably, a life-sized bride and groom fashioned out of balloons and a newsagent's window. We swap brief glances with the North Sea, now just yards from the road, when an old lady with lilac gloves gets on. She seen more of the outdoors than most, and her skin is so leathery could make a settee out of it. She sidles up to the German lads, and tells them about the impending doom today's forecasted rain will bring. They don't get a word in for a few minutes that she's on board, but when she disembarks at a local Asda, they're delighted to have had an unsolicited one-way exchange about the foibles of the Scottish weather. Just outside town, our trusty 253 heads past Golden Beaches and the Torness Nuclear Power Station. A windowless grey block on the landscape, the cartoonish face on its western approach makes it look like someone designed it using Minecraft. 
opened in 1988. It's expected that the facility will last for at least another decade. But to highlight that nature always finds a way to trump technology, its reactors shut down in 2001 after the water intakes became clogged by a bloom of jellyfish. We cross into the Scottish borders and reach Colburn's bath, where one of the German visitors hops up. Excuse me, the man with a russet beard asked the driver, and you'll notice that I've got rid of the dodgy accents now. Is this where the bowling green is, please? Aye, he replies, pointing to a bowls club on the opposite side of the road. It's right there. This is amazing. Thank you so much. And with that, him and his friend cleared off. With the season starting just a fortnight ago, Coburn's Path Bowling Club has a green so pristine that it looks like Vidal Sassoon himself has treated it to a scissor cut. Its whitewashed single-storey clubhouse nestles into the grass banking which circumnavigates the playing surface. And while it's one of the more aesthetically pleasing settings for a game of balls, it's a mystery as to why the German fellas are so intent to snap it. It's a dinky village, around about 400 people live there, but Colburn's Path is the epicentre of walking routes in this corner of the country. The Sir Walter Scott Way heads west to Moffat, the Southern Upland Way stretches beyond that to Stranraer and Port Patrick, and the Bedwickshire Coastal Path winds south towards our destination, Bedwick. Pink Campion and Vivid Yellow Gorse jostle for supremacy on the verges as we head back to the A1. The road is prettier here as we crest the brow which opens views of hillsides covered in dense conifers. Sheep and cattle patrol any thimbles of land not already occupied by trees, while a handful of hares become progressively flattened in their new career as roadkill. Our first signs for English places other than Bedick zip by showing that Newcastle, where we're going to end up tonight, is still 83 miles away. We place a silent offering to St. Fiacra, patron saint of hemorrhoid sufferers. But it's a different St. Eleanor has her eye on. Oh, it's the patron saint of exercise over there, she says while motioning to a turn off on the left. Eh? St. Abs, she grins. Abs has got two Bs. Her hand's doing a triumphant badumtish drum roll in what is best described as the aftermath. This is what bus trips can do to you. You need to prepare for these unexpected dad jokes, but I do wish that I'd thought of it first, because it is pretty good, actually. Anyway, Aiton is the regional floral village of the year, which is surprising, as there don't appear to be any flowers in the place at all. There's a deer relaxing in a grove of trees and a, and a pheasant taunting the inmates from the lawn of Q's Cat Motel, but not a bouquet in sight. The bus runs alongside Eyewater, a stream with the UK's most unappealing name, which we follow into Eyemouth. It's amazing there isn't already a horror film character called Eyemouth, so I've put together a pitch. Bear with me. Right. A spindly ghost who has mouths for eyes. He can only survive by crunching down on his victim's eyeballs and grafting their optic nerves to his forehead. He suffers a terrible accident where he pops a glass eye into his main mouth one day and chips one of his serrated teeth. Of course, he vows revenge on the whole of humanity, starting at a party where a house full of jocks and cheerleaders are dancing to 90s gangster rap and drinking illicit punch. You know, no one drinks in America until the 21 and all that kind of thing, so they're all going to be tated. Anyway, eye mouth, he devours them all, one by one. After which, a close-up shows him wiping the bloody drool from each of his gnashing mars. Or are they tears? Is he fighting a curse? I fear we'll never know, because I'll probably never write it and no one ever will. But there you are. You have my permission to make a film 
out of eye mouth, if you like. Or even a cult classic book. Go on, knock yourself out, it'll be great. Eye mouth's lair could be the green tin shed propped up by a metal bar on the outskirts of town. With its bulbous midsection, it looks like a tin of rotten Swedish herring on the brink of bursting. But it's also where we pick up more newcomers. One of them, a woman in her 50s with a bleach blonde plait and a Jack Russell in her arms, sits just in front of us. You're no use to bosses, are you? She rasps to her canine companion in a voice which has finished off more cigarettes than the rest of the bus has had hot dinners, teas and breakfast combined. To calm him down, he gets kisses and cuddles the entire way to Berwick, all reciprocated by frantic licks of her puckered lips. Eyemouth isn't a place without its charms, but you need to look pretty hard for them. The fifty shades of grey render slapped onto its properties emphasise the gloominess of the sky, and although the sea is the same colour as an iron ingot this morning, it does have the advantage of being the sea. The marketplace has a bronze statue to Willie Spears. Nicknamed the King of Fish, he led a 20-year campaign in the mid-1800s against the tithes that he and his fellow fishermen had to pay. On top of the regular taxes, they had to set aside 10% of their earnings to the local Church of Scotland minister, who had no intention of letting them off the hook, despite Eyemouth being the last port in the country subject to such charges. Imprisoned for his refusal to submit to the clergy, the community rallied around to settle Spears' fines and kirk fees. The tithes too were finally paid off once and for all, yet despite the improvements made to ports throughout Scotland, the authorities let Eyemouth's harbour go to seed. An ambitious scheme to reduce the risks of what was a dangerous landing at the best of times was eventually signed off, but just six weeks later, disaster struck. A hurricane lashed Britain in October 1881, while Eyemouth's fleet was at sea. Turning for home, 20 boats were battered against exposed rocks and harbour walls, with 129 lives lost in full view of helpless families who knew the gravity of the situation and rushed to shore. A further 60 fishermen from other ports also died that day. Willie Spears wasn't one of them. He warned there was a storm brewing due to depressed barometer readings, but after several weeks of awful weather, his colleagues were impatient to cast off for what would be the last time for many. Willie didn't have many sailings left in him either, and after that, he passed away in 1885. From our lofty perch on the cliffs beyond town, we see a small trio of vessels on the hunt for prawns and lobster, heading out to continue Imus tradition for another generation. We're so high up that a gang of seagulls are gliding way below us, with the West Coast Mainline Railway even further beneath their extended wings. The A1 widens as we approach the English border, marked by a simple stone block with a flag of St George carved into it. It's easy enough to miss, but there's no song and dance about crossing into a different jurisdiction. It's only a couple of miles from here to Berwick, or as its welcome sign puts it, the walled town of Berwick-upon-Tweed. Deposited outside the train station, we step straight into the chilled Castlevale Park. Dotted around the edge of its pond are thrushes, great tits and my first ever bullfinch. I wanted to find one ever since realising birds other than sparrows and pigeons existed last autumn and this fleeting glimpse threatens to make my eyes well up. Not that much, but you know, a little bit. Anyway, the views over the Tweed stretch for miles beyond the 28 arches of Robert Stevenson's Royal Border Bridge which has carried the railway since Queen Victoria opened it in 1850. 
as much as we could dawdle here all day, we've got a bus to catch. The X-18 to Newcastle. It's only going to take four hours. Thanks very much for listening, everyone. I hope you've enjoyed it, and you'll be pleased to know that the next bus to Newcastle doesn't take four hours to listen to. That one will be posted soon, or if you're listening to this sufficiently far into the future, it's already there as the next episode. In fact, the written version, without my stupendous voice acting, is available to read over on slowertravel.co.uk. Until next time then, I'm Ian, and this is Slower Travel. Slowertravel.co.uk